called Fighting for Family. The goal here is to give encouragement and tools for you, no matter what family looks like, that uh, would help you right where you're at. We, we don't want to be men and women that fight with our family. We want to fight for our family, and family is always worth fighting for. And although we are beginning our series focused on marriage, this is really a series for everyone. In regards to marriage, either, either you're here this morning, you are married, or you will be married, or you know someone that is married, and we need to be a voice for truth and take a stand for what marriage is all about according to God's design, which is why we're starting in Genesis 2. There are lots of places that we're still going to get to in the Bible that talks about marriage, but Genesis 2 is unique because it is the owner's manual for, from the Lord about how marriage worked. It's, his, it's the second chapter in the Bible. It's, it's his bedrock for how, how we are to think about marriage, live marriage, and ultimately to lay a good foundation. That's what we want to do. Because you know this in, in building, and we just talked about a building. If the foundation is off, the structure is off. And what could end up happening is your family looks a little bit like this. And some of you are like, yeah, that's, my, that's, that's our marriage. That's our family. It's just, it's just not quite right. It's just not quite working the way I want it to work. And so today we're going to continue to talk about marriage. Because remember, church, churches aren't just for, for weddings, we're for marriage, and we're for your marriage, and we want to, again, just provide all the tools we hope that you need to, to help you in this area. Now, to remind you, last week, because this is sort of a part two, we looked at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 21. And in this, this, um, these three verses, I want to read verse 18 together where it captures the idea of what we talked about in a summary way. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper or a suitable helper for him. And we talked a lot about a lot of things, but the big idea was how the Lord, if the Lord has provided you a spouse, the Lord is going to use your spouse, wants to use your spouse to help expose the sin that's in us. Those things and ways that maybe they kind of bother you or draw things out and you get frustrated about it, but actually that's God's tool and design that he would use marriage to help us to become more like him, to help us to learn how to love, how to serve, and so much more. And in this way, your spouse is your helper, your suitable helper, your, your like opposite reinforcement to bring you refreshing to bring you support, and ultimately to bring the victory. Today we're going to pick up in verse 21. We're only going to look at four verses. And in these verses, we're going to see the very first wedding, and we're going to see a key definition from God about marriage. And I'm just convinced if we lived out, not only what we talked about last week, and if you missed that message, you can go back on the church website or Facebook or YouTube and, and catch that. But if we lived out last week and this week, in daily life, it will make a dramatic impact, a dramatic difference in your marriage. Last week, I encouraged, if those of you who are married, I encouraged spouses to be suitable helpers. Today, and if you have your bulletin on the back, your first fill in the blank, here's what I want to encourage us to be today. To be passionate pursuers. A husband and wife should be passionate pursuers of each other. Now, remember, the Lord noted in Genesis 2, he said, it's not good that man is alone. I'm going to make a suitable helper, as we just read. And then God's going to take the initiative to address what isn't good. We're going to pick up now in verse 21. Let's read together. It says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. 
And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, or it could be side, and then, uh, or parts of a side, and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made, and that word made is interesting. It literally means to sculpt. It's a, it's a sculpture of sorts. That's what the word be used for. Then he made or sculpted a woman from the rib or the part that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, it may not be apparent and obvious, but this is the first wedding. Here you have God putting Adam into a deep sleep. Adam didn't find Eve. He didn't create Eve. He didn't go dating for Eve. He just, he just did what God called him to do, and God led, and God provided, and God created Eve in this case. And what does he do as a loving father? He brings Eve to Adam, and he gives her to Adam as a gift, as this gift uh, to, to him. And I love Adam's then reaction in verse 23. Now, these are the first recorded words from the first man. And here's what it says. It says, the man said, this is now, I want to pause here real quick. The, the phrase, this is now in the Hebrew, where this is originally written, and what this means is at last, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation. He is excited. It literally means, it means at last, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. That's what that term means that we translate at last or that we translate is this is now. It's this is the one I've been waiting for all my life. Now, some of you are like, well, it hasn't been a very long life, but nonetheless, he's excited when he sees Eve being presented to him. And then he says, next, he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, Adam here, he calls Eve, as we just read, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, guys, this is actually very romantic Hebrew poetry. So use this sometime. Like this is, he is being romantic to her. That's what he's doing here when he says this to her. But you're like, well, what is, what, is, what, is he, what is he saying here? This is what he's saying. He's saying, when I'm looking at you, I'm seeing the one who helps me understand who I am. That's what that means. Adam says, when I look at you, Eve, I'm looking at the one that helps me understand who I am. This is, this is an expression of, of knowing one another. This is an expression of friendship, of, of being a teammate, of, of, of you're the one that shows me all the ways I both need to grow, but also my strengths, that in each other, we see better who we are. This is an expression, again, a beautiful expression that he gives to her. They are like opposites. And then that brings us to our last verse, verse 24, where we're going to camp for most of our time this morning. In this verse 24, the Lord captures a definition for marriage. Let's read this together. It says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And there is so much in this verse. It is packed, but for the purposes this morning, we're going to look at how the Lord, he gave three commands. Three commands both to Adam, 
but they're also for us. And the reason we know this com- these commands are not just for Adam, but they're also for us in terms of every other marriage that came after Adam is because Adam didn't have parents to leave. So, so there's parts that don't really apply to Adam because it's for all people. It's a pattern that he's setting. And the pattern has three parts. And your next fill in the blank, part one in this verse here is this idea that we are to leave. And what this communicates to us is that marriage is to be your primary relationship. It's to be your primary relationship. And I highlight that in the verse. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother. This is what we see here. Notice in this passage that the Lord did not provide Adam a mom or a dad. And the Lord did not even provide Adam a child. And so we can infer from that because he provided a spouse. He provided a wife. And that is that while our most important relationship, our priority relationship for all of us should be with the Lord. But second to that, when it comes to the relationships that we have with other people, that your, if, this, if, you, if the Lord has called you to marriage, that your marriage relationship is to be your primary relationship above a parent-child relationship. It is to be the primary relationship. Now, there are some families, and I would encourage you to do some introspection, even in your own family dynamics, some families, the child or children are the center of the family. Everything revolves around the children. They become, they become the focus of the family, and they can become the glue for the marriage. And given enough years of just repetition of that, it begins to be exposed when the kids begin to leave home to go out on their own. All of a sudden, you look around and the nest is empty, and so is the marriage relationship. See, the marriage is supposed to take primary place in the family unit. In other words, you love your kids best when you love your spouse most. Now, when I'm saying that, some of you internally, there might be some turmoil or pushback on what I'm saying, but I would encourage you to get before the Lord on that. Some of us, we have some things backwards. The marriage relationship is to be the primary relationship. But there's more than that. Because it isn't just with the child. In some family dynamics, that isn't the issue. Sometimes the issue goes to the parent. In other words, a couple has not left mom and dad. The couple is still clinging on to mom and dad. Maybe that's financial dependence. Maybe that's when, when a husband and wife get into a fight, what she does or he does is calls up mom and dad or runs over to her parents' house to say how bad and how wrong that her husband or wife, his wife is. That dynamic does happen sometimes. But it's important that a husband and wife leave home, that they, they have a separation. It doesn't mean you end the relationship, of course, but it means that it takes its proper place and that the husband and wife relationship is primary, and then those relationships with the parent becomes a secondary or less primary relationship. This is an important thing to wrestle with and to think about. And I will add to it, parents, you can help with this. If you're at a stage of life where your kids are beginning to leave home and beginning to meet that special someone, they're engaged, they're married, they're, 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 they're newly married, you do them a great favor when you allow them to leave 
And you allow them to form their own habits. You don't put pressure on them for certain things. Like you have to be at our house at Christmas morning and you have to do this and do that. Let them build their own traditions. Let them work things out. Let them be their own couple to figure out the marriage relationship and to make all of that work. And so here we see that we are to leave, that the marriage relationship is to be the primary relationship. That's the first command we have in this important verse. Let's look at number two. Number two is the idea of cleaving. That marriage is not only to be your primary relationship, it's also to be your permanent relationship. I highlighted that here where we say again in repetition, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and here's the key and is united to his wife. That word united is important. It, it means to, um, to be glued to. It, it means to cling to. It, 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 has a, it, it communicates permanence. But you know what else it means? And I love this. It also means to pursue to pursue, to, to run hard after, because you know as well as I do, we pursue that which we love, don't we? And can you remember the first time you fell in love? You fell in love with the spouse that you have today and, and, and all the things that you did in those early years to pursue each other, to pursue the relationship. And let's be honest, we do dumb things when we're young and in love, don't we? I'll give you an example. I'll be very vulnerable. This is a dumb thing I did among many things. I used to, I used to write Laura, my wife, love songs. They're so bad. I would get my guitar, and this, some of you are not going to understand anything I'm talking about, but I'd have a cassette player, right? And you put it in, and then you push record, and everything has to be quiet around, of course. Okay? And we can talk. And I'd play these dumb songs, and I'd mail, mail. Uh, I would put it in the physical mail and mail the cassette to Laura. It's horrible. But guess what you do when you're in love? Well, here's the worst part. Laura was gracious. Our kids, not so much. They got a hold of that and they heard the songs. <laughs> they have never let me live that down of how bad that is. They could not stop laughing. But we do that when we're in love because we pursue, don't we? We pursue, but then sometimes along the way, we stop pursuing for whatever reason. We become complacent. Um, and the passion runs out. But the passion ran out because we stopped pursuing. We stopped seeking after them. And I would challenge any of you in any area of life to assess, is there anything in life where when you become complacent, things get better? Work, parenting, fill in the blank, finances, I mean, nothing, right? It's, it just doesn't work that way. And that we do this sometimes in our marriage, and here's what happens, sadly. When we stop pursuing, what begins to happen is that we start to have thoughts on giving up on the relationship. Ever have that thought? When we stop pursuing, we start to have those kinds of thoughts. But here's what this is. If I can use an analogy, this is what that's parallel to. It's parallel to having thoughts about, I'm going to sell my car because it's run out of gas. Fill up the tank. The car's still good. Fill up the tank. But we don't do that. We think the car's no good and move on. And then sometimes what can happen too, and let's just be honest with each other, is we can have these thoughts that the grass is greener somewhere else. 
We begin to wonder. We begin to think. We allow our thoughts and minds sometimes to go to the other places they should never go. And yet all the while, the issue is that we stopped pursuing. So I want to ask you some questions and make some, make some observations. First, the observations. Number one, I want to, I want to suggest to you that if you are not a, a person in your marriage that pursues, that you assess this. And that you think about it this way. Pursue your spouse like they want to be pursued. And if you don't know how to do that, you need to ask them. Are they looking for somebody to listen? Do they just need help because there are babies and kids everywhere and the house is a mess and that would help? Like, what, what does that mean for them? Is it a date night? Does he need affirmation? You can start with the love languages if that helps, but just begin to think about, I need to pursue my spouse in a way that they want to be pursued. And the second thing I want to encourage you to think about is pursue your spouse regularly, even if you don't feel like it. If you're in a place where I don't feel like pursuing, who cares? Do it anyway. Lead your heart. Don't follow your heart. Do it because you, you need to. Don't get lulled to sleep in your marriage relationship. And let me add one last thought. When it comes to your marriage, if things have run dry and you want back the feelings that you once had, you need to start doing the things you once did. So go back. Pull out your guitar and write some cheesy songs. <laughs> Whatever it takes to begin to pursue your husband or wife. Because it's important. That's what it means to cleave. We need to leave so that we can cleave. And that brings us to number three. Your next fill in the blank. And become one flesh See, the marriage is your portrait relationship. And that might seem a little confusing. I was working hard on my alliteration, but go with me on this. Meaning the marriage is a picture of something far bigger than ourselves, than the couple themselves. It points to something far bigger. Now in the passage here at the very end, this is the start part of the command where it says, and they become one flesh. This is something that God does in them. And I want to be very clear because sometimes there's a misunderstanding on this. This expression is not about sex. That's, that's actually not what this is about. This, there's something so much more significant here. What this means, the word there, um, flesh, means person. Literally, it means to become one person. A husband and wife, on their wedding day, they remain two individuals in marriage, but yet in marriage, they are one. They are one in relationship, and this is what God does. Jesus talks about it in Mark, of what God has brought together. They become one. Let no man ever separate. This is what he does in the marriage relationship. And then sex becomes a physical picture or portrait of the oneness in marriage that a husband and wife share. And for, for this reason, then, sex is not just random. It's not like what culture says. It's just, it's just something to do, like bowling or scrapbooking. Like, that's not what sex is about. It points to something far more significant, far more important. See, when two individuals become one in marriage, this becomes a portrait of who God is, namely Trinitarian. God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, 
Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God, three persons. So husband and wife are one in marriage and yet two individuals. And in Ephesians 5, Paul says, he's like, there's mystery to this. But this is why your marriage relationship does and should point to the glory and the person, nature, and character of who God is. What he has instituted in marriage is remarkable and beautiful to be cherished and protected. This is what he has done. And this is why, as an aside, Satan always attacks marriage because Satan hates everything that is God or of God or looks like God. So isn't any wonder that you have a target on the back the moment you say, I do. He wants to dismantle that marriage relationship. He wants to destroy anything that speaks to the glory, nature, character, and person of who God is. Marriage is significant. Marriage is important. And marriage is a portrait to something so much bigger than us. So what does all this mean? Here's what it means. It means that if you are married, the Lord is calling you to be a passionate pursuer of your spouse. If you know somebody, you're not married, but you know somebody who is married, to encourage them to be a passionate pursuer of the one that they entered a covenant relationship with and to never stop, to never give up, to never look askance at something or someone else, to be locked in and to love their husband or wife and do it because you love them, do it because you need them, but I also want to encourage you to do this because this is, this is what God does for you. In other words, he is your passionate pursuer. That's who he is. He loves you. And like any groom or bride, he has given you his heart. He longs for relationship with you. And his love extended to you is pure and faithful and consistent. It's steadfast, undying. That's his love extended to us. Unfortunately, our love extended back to him are none of those things. We are fickle. We are divided and inconsistent. We are the king and queen of saying, I believe in God, but I live my own terms. I do what I want, when I want. I'll assent on Sunday. It doesn't change that I think there is a God and that Jesus is real. I, I understand all of that. But when it comes to sort of everyday daily life, that isn't anything in terms of what my life looks like. And the Bible has some very strong words about that. I'm gonna step on a couple of toes, maybe mine too. It calls it spiritual adultery. Some of you have lived through an experience in marriage where the other was unfaithful. The pain that that is hurts. Let me give you an Old Testament and New Testament example. You can turn there if you would like. It's also on the screen behind. But Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 20 where it says, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me. That's the Lord speaking. In James 4, 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? See, when we say, when we say we love God, 
but then we give our heart to other things, other people, other places, and other pursuits. That grieves the heart of God. You could say it this way, that when it comes to a relationship with the Lord, we are, he's the groom and we're the bride. The Bible uses that analogy all the time, but we are the bride from hell. And that God is locked into the longest lasting, worst marriage ever. And I share that because that's the bad news to highlight the good news. Because that is the very issue and reason or explanation for why Jesus came. Jesus came to win back his wayward bride. I'd encourage you to read the book of Hosea, which has this analogy, sort of a historical example of this. He came to win us back. He came to, to pursue us, to, to reach us, to have a relationship with us. He didn't do it because we're lovely. He did it to make us lovely. He came, and, and, and how did we, the bride, treat his son as Jesus came in pursuit of us? We rejected him and we murdered him. But that's exactly God's sovereign plan of using that on the cross to deal with the obstacle in our heart, the chasm that we built between us and God, this sin chasm that we can never span. Jesus becomes the bridge. Jesus becomes the, the way to back to relationship with him. And this is what it means to be restored into a right relationship, to place your trust in Christ. And if you've never done that before, if you've never made that decision, the gift is there, the offer is there. Jesus came for you, he pursues you, he died for you in grace, forgiveness, and a second chance relationship is available to you. And after the service, there will be people up here to pray with you. I wanna invite you to come and to pray with somebody and they will, they will help you and pray with you and give you resources to help you on your new journey, to experience restoration. You see, being a Christian isn't just about believing the right things. It's about living the right way. And it's about pursuing as you are pursued by him. And so I want to give you two challenges before I invite, before I invite the band up. Two challenges. I want, to, I want to challenge those who are married. How are you doing pursuing your wife or husband? How are you doing? And if you don't know, you need to ask them. And to that end, I want to I close the gap between intention and action. And there's two quick fill in the blanks. These are some ideas for action steps for you. And here we go. Number one, encourage daily. In pursuing your spouse, I want to challenge you to encourage them daily. Everybody needs encouragement. Ephesians, or Hebrews 3.13 talks about it. It says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, say that no one may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Find ways to encourage. Love them through encouragement and words of affirmation and, and building them up. Speak life into them, into your relationship. So I want to encourage you to, to encourage them daily. And then number two, your last fill in the blank, date weekly. 
If you're married and, and not doing this, I understand there's pockets of time or you can get out of routine or, or a time where, where maybe you've fallen off and this doesn't happen, but make this a priority. And this does not need to be expensive. This does not need to be formal. It can be. It can just mean simply time together, time without the kids, time to talk, time to share, to listen, time to pray together. Uh, for Laura and I, we, we, for 23 years we've been married, we walk as long as we are allowed to, the weather allows it. If we can, we walk. And we, and we just, we spend time, in fact, this week we went for a walk and we sort of did the math and we figured out we have probably walked from coast to coast in the United States two times and now we're on our third leg of just time together to share and to listen that builds our relationship, that helps us. What is it for you? Finding the time, making sure that gets on the calendar first before everything else gets in there and clutters it up. So encourage daily, date weekly, because the bottom line is your marriage is as good as you will make it. In fact, look at this quote from Jimmy Evans. Marriage only works when you work at it. Will you work at it? Will you take some steps this week? Will you find ways to be a passionate pursuer? And if you're here this morning and, this isn't, and you're not married, but this is for every single one of us, this is far bigger than just your marriage relationship. I'd like the band to come up to it, please. How are you doing pursuing God? Is he someone in the background of your life? Is he someone that is easily forgotten? Is he someone that, yeah, you believe there's mental ascent and, and yet when it comes to daily life, he's sort of cut out? Or is he a part of it all? What does it look like for you to pursue the Lord? This could be a very important question for you to ponder today. And maybe there needs to be some action steps. Pursue the Lord. If you're married, pursue your spouse. If you're not married, pursue those family relationships. Take initiative. Be that person that encourages and loves. It doesn't matter if you get it back. Do it anyway. It doesn't matter if you feel like it. Do it anyway. Because that's what God has modeled to us. Let's pray. Can we pray together about this? In fact, this is what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you, I want to give you just time for you and God. Just silently to pray to him. Just, just to talk to him. Because maybe there's some things here that, that you need to, to address or get right. Some people you need to be praying for. Your marriage, some situations you're going through. So I invite you now to pray, and then I'll close this in just, in just a moment. Father, something true about every single one of us is that we pursue those things that we love. And the things that we love, we pursue. 
this morning we come with a posture of repentance for those places and ways that we have pursued things that we have no business pursuing. Those habits, those, those things, those addictions that lead our heart to places it shouldn't go. We confess that this morning. And we ask too, Lord, that you would help us to be men and women to pursue you above all else, wholeheartedly loving you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to pursue our family, whatever that looks like. To be extravagant lovers and friends, to be encouragers. We need your help with that, Lord. And so we entrust this to you and pray, Father, for each one here that starting today, there would be some honest assessment and some realistic, real-life action steps taking place. Help us to be passionate pursuers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You please stand and join us in worship. We'd like to end our worship service this morning with, with just this proclamation that Jesus Christ is enough.